0: Hello, I'm David Mascrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Throughout the pandemic, the quality and success of communications from government, public health officials, elected representatives, and others tasked with keeping us in a loop have been, let's say, inconsistent. There have been highs and there have been lows. Quality has varied across jurisdiction, and it shows. While approaches to good communication work may vary, there are some strategies and tactics that ought to be more common. For instance, meeting people where they are, rather than expecting them to come to you. That is precisely what this week's guest does. He answers the question, how should we talk about public health during a pandemic? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Dr. Nahid Dosani, palliative care physician, lecturer in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto, assistant clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University, and health justice activist. Let's start with your TikTok account. You you signed up for the service to talk about palliative care, but you've since used it to discuss public health during the pandemic. So what's been your strategy and how has that account and your presence Evolved over time.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm really um, glad we're we're talking about this. I think at the outset, when people hear about doctors being on TikTok, it might lead someone to chuckle or, <laughs> or wonder why would anyone do that. And I, I literally started the TikTok account in January um, of 2020 to just provide palliative care education, as you mentioned. And I was kind of blown away that. You know, young young people, typically under forty, but people from all walks of life were really interested in the topic. Something that's often stigmatized in our discourse. And when COVID hit, I started to see other colleagues around the world um, using it as an education tool. Um, and so, I, I you know, being one of the few Canadian TikTok docs at the time. Um, you know, started putting out my own messaging. I put out videos around public health guidelines, um, around, you know, this week's COVID update, why we should wear a mask, um, how COVID disproportionately affects different communities like racialized communities or people experiencing homelessness. And, you know... Um, it, it, it just really resonated with people. Uh, for those who are not as familiar with TikTok, um, it's a platform that uses short videos, music, and text in really creative and innovative ways. And in like 20 seconds or even 10 seconds sometimes, you can send a really complex message if you're using that in a creative way that can really resonate with people. Um, and you know, we're talking about videos getting like 100,000 views, 200,000 views. And then there are the ones that totally flopped where you like try <laughs> and then it totally <laughs> <laughs> falls apart, but but that's okay because that happens to everybody. And you know, you gotta you gotta try, right? You miss a hundred percent, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. But um yeah, it's been a quite a quite a while ride for sure.
0: It's like Twitter, you know. You send out. I'm still. I'm I'm ten years or so on Twitter. And I'm still wrapping my head around it. You send out, if you're me, tweets all the time, and it's always the the most random unexpected things that take off i still haven't decoded it you know you think by now you'd figure out what's a hit but does it doesn't ever surprise you that something takes off and you think well I, I didn't see that coming
1: yeah totally like sometimes it's it's the algorithm right and we don't understand the right. algorithm and tiktok's algorithm is so like nobody understands it what hits what doesn't um and sometimes it's the way you say things and like you know you're you're a writer, David, so you understand. You know that the way you construct something just hits in a way that that's not hit with previous trials of it. And and I think sometimes when our governments and public health messaging comes out, especially at the beginning, the 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 explanations were really full of jargon and a lot of rhetoric, and it was like a one size fits all approach to com- to communications. So when you layer it in a way that it really resonates with someone, either linguistically from a, from an age or like age demographic perspective. Perspective, or even socioeconomic perspective, it can really make a big difference and you can get more uptake.
0: I, I want to get into the strengths and weaknesses of, of government messaging in a minute. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of doctors on social media doing advocacy and, and doing it at times in, in entertaining ways or public health work and so on. I mean, I, I grew up visiting doctors as people, as everyone does. Uh, I had spent significant time in the hospital when I was young uh, because of uh, renal issues that involved surgery and it was actually a pretty close call. And I've, you know, since, you know, as I've discussed on this podcast before, I have a lung issue. And so I've been and out for that and all that time, doctors seemed sort of aloof removed. They were these sort of professionals that were sort of beyond reach beyond question, but, but often not humanized. And not thought of as, as celebrities beyond the sort of television shows where you get, you know, Dr. Oz or something. But now you've got doctors, day-to-day folks on the front lines, who are sort of exploding on social media and doing all this public work, including yourself. I mean, do you think that's changing the way that we view and interact with doctors more broadly?
1: Um, first of all, uh, David, I want to thank you for sharing the stories about yourself and what you go through um, in your interactions with the healthcare system and, and for sharing that resilience. super inspiring. Um, I think, you know, uh, your experiences um, uh, dealing with healthcare are what a lot of people talk about, that healthcare and particularly doctors, um, you know, from a branding perspective or an experience perspective can come off really sterile and, um, it's you know, uh, it's really hard to, to, to gain um you know what what a physician feels when there's like a social justice issue at hand or or an ethical issue and so you know during this pandemic we have seen the ways that physicians specifically and the physician advocacy role plays is 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 just so important um from promoting public health and and, and and objective data and science to pushing back on on government, pushing back on institutions and even you know other movements like like you know anti-vaxxer movements or um anti-masker movements right we've seen the importance of that um you know for me going into medicine um, the advocacy role was the main reason I became a doctor as a son of two refugees who came to Canada in the 1970s. I always knew there would be a social justice, you know, angle to the work I did. I never imagined it being, um, you know, being a, a palliative care doctor for people experiencing homelessness, and then using sort of those experiences to be a health communicator on platforms like Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. But um, It goes without saying that there is great I understand the privilege that I have as a physician and physicians have great privilege in society, but, and, and that's great. And that's, that's probably why sometimes the messages get out there and we, and people trust us, but with that privilege comes great responsibilities. I think it was like a Spider-Man quote or something, but it's, it <laughs> it's really resonates. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, if you're going to get out there and you're going to advocate, you know, you have a responsibility because people, some people will hang on your every word and, and for, those who don't, you will be challenged in the public sphere, right? And we're not always trained in our in our med school training or residency for that, um, but, but I, I always, I always want to say this, actually, in Canada, when you graduate as a physician, advocacy is a core role. Like, you are not supposed to pass as a physician um, and graduate unless you've shown um, that you're an effective advocate. So, um, this is core to the physician role, and there's a long-standing history of physicians standing up for social justice, human rights, equity, science, public health, um, and we've needed these voices more than ever during the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: And, and social media, I think, it has facilitated that, that emergence even more so. I mean, I, I pay a lot of attention to doctors on social media. It's part of the way I do research when I'm thinking about these issues and talking about them because I get asked about them all the time. And, and to the extent that I'm able to respond, it's because I've looked up what public health experts and physicians and so on have have been saying. I I can't imagine this being possible before social media, not to this extent, but it's a a different leap altogether and an encouraging one to see someone go to say TikTok, because as you've said elsewhere, you've got to meet people where they are. Right. 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 And, And I wonder, you know, how, how have you found that process? Do you find that you're reaching the folks that you want to reach and is there enough of that work going on?
1: You know this is just a really exciting time to be in medicine and to to have a a coherent uh, public a message um, and and be effective at it. Um, I think in the past, you know, traditionally uh, doctors were accessed, you know, like you said, there were probably celebrity doctors on TV um, and, and, or, you know, you know, the media would, would access doctors through the hospital or, or, or other institutions. And then they'd get a quote and it'd be very, you know, um, filtered that way. Nowadays, people can access doctors on every social media platform. And I think the, the, the platform it's itself has, um, and the platforms that exist, have given this this energy and ability for doctors to, to send messages in ways that make sense. If you're into text-heavy you know, heavy kind of content, Twitter's where it's at. If you're into visuals and images, well, Instagram's really good for that. If you're into videos, um, TikTok's great for that. And I don't know if you've heard of Clubhouse, David, but I'm actually on <laughs> Clubhouse now, which is like audio only, right? Like we're literally covering it all. And, and, and no matter what platform you go on, you will see people who are experts, in particular fields and subfields and it's it's actually phenomenal for, for one reason I think is is knowledge sharing like that's that's a huge reason why this is important knowledge is now accessible in a way that is so different than how it was several years ago and I think it's really breaking down the hierarchy of this typical paternalistic medical traditional you know patient doctor model where there's one way transmission of information we're seeing this like back forth information happening and it's happening on multiple levels on multiple platforms
0: and it really is encouraging. It's funny. I, I uh, was thinking about my history with with doctors and hospitals recently, and I was thinking back to my time in British Columbia. And then I saw one of my my doctors or one of the doctors I would see at the walk-in clinic on Twitter, and I thought, like, am I allowed to follow her? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Is yes. she allowed to follow me? What, what does that say? But I you know, the it's funny, the, the one time thinking about it, I so one of the challenges I faced with my lungs is I, I'm susceptible to pneumonia. And so in the aftermath of the first time I had pneumonia, this is such a strange thing. I went to the hospital and I, I was seeing a specialist and they were doing follow up x rays. And I'm in the in the room with the x ray, and the technician sort of looks at my file and sort of looks at me and says, I think I know you. <laughs> and I thought, Oh. Okay, well, I'm I'm very curious to see where this goes. And so uh, she sort of says, D- "Are you a writer?" And I'm like, "Uh-oh." <laughs> there you go. <laughs> cuz you're so Kinecti. far removed, right? Yeah. And uh, yep. it's it's, you know, everyone's anonymous and it's so procedural. And she's like, "I really liked this thing that you wrote." And she went on to talk to me about it for a couple of minutes and it was the most charming and and uh, calming thing cuz I was I was anxious as you can imagine. And I just remember sitting there after a couple of minutes thinking, should we be getting out of this room? Does someone need an x-ray <laughs> machine? You know? Oh, man. That's so uh, funny. But, but now it seems, I mean, I don't think we should underestimate the, the degree to which humanizing and making doctors accessible across these platforms is going to encourage people to, to think about this thing, this, this stuff, but also to, to be comfortable reaching out for help, have you, have you, are you getting a sense that people are becoming more comfortable in talking about their issues, reaching out for help uh, and thinking of doctors as, I mean, accessible?
1: Yeah, you know, it's not just that the social media platforms have been able to collapse that that traditional hierarchy of how medical messaging happens. Um, because again, you can literally just use your platform and get a message out, um, but it's also the messages that are getting out. And one example from 2020 that I'm really grateful that you know colleagues, um, myself and others were able to talk about in Canadian medicine was anti-racism, particularly anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism after the, the brutal murder of George Floyd and all the events that happen after that you know for a long time um you know in in medical culture in Canada there's been somewhat of a um uh, uh, an avoidance of talking about the racism that exists within healthcare now don't get me wrong it's been discussed from time to time but not in a not in a way that is uh, truly transformational and and the kinds of conversations that need to be had. And through social media, you know, uh, we were able to change discourse, medical discourse, public discourse, media discourse uh, uh, about anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, the experiences of of Black and Indigenous people in our communities, you know, over surveillance of of racialized communities, particularly how people who experience mental health crises interact with police. Um, And and that was an example from 2020 where if, if these platforms weren't around, and and, and and we didn't have access to, to people and, the, and, and be able to sway opinion and, and the, the topics that are being discussed. I don't know if this all would have been discussed through the medical culture as much as it was in sort of the public discourse that was happening. So you, you, you can see that you can actually sway the messaging and you can really get at the core of what, of what, what people are thinking about. And, and equity is an example and social justice issues are examples of those.
0: Has there been any pushback from colleagues? you know perhaps even especially older colleagues who sort of wonder what the point is or whether or not it's appropriate
1: you know like any kind of innovation or or change in the in the in the profession you you get you get some resistance and you, and you get some people who can sometimes push back for example um uh you know uh there there's there is a sense that um uh you know, in our in our medical discourse, there's typically a hierarchy. As I mentioned, it's often you know academic and years in practice. And you know, now we live in a world where a physician can have a really you know um you know really great reputation can be can be seen as an expert, and it can be very much tied to their social channels. And that's why I always, when mentoring young younger or physicians who are you know in training, to say while investing in your social channels is important, you must. Can continue to do good work that you know continue to do good research do good activism your clinical work is it has to be impeccable because the way that your social profile looks online should be just one piece of the arsenal um and 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 we've seen sort of a certain group that overinvests in their social credentials, and 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 that can sometimes cause some some issues. The other the other thing that we've we've kind of seen um, is that sometimes what you say online um, can be at odds with the place that you might work um, or uh, other organizations that you may represent. And once you get a following and you start to sway public opinion, like we've talked about, because of that privilege, um, that can sometimes uh, create. Conflict as well, and I've seen that for colleagues uh, you know b- before the pandemic, but especially during the pandemic too
0: This is why I like to think that none of the organizations I do work for like uh, allow me to speak for them. <laughs> <You>
1: know,
0: just, <laughs> I speak for nobody but myself, uh, which is right. nice. This is the life of of a of a freelancer who's attached to many organizations is that you you end up with many platforms but no home which suits some of us quite well right. uh, i, I want to pivot to uh, provincial federal municipal messaging during the pandemic we're approaching uh, a year of this or or past a year of it depending on where you are and we're thinking about how how it's gone and part of that is how we've talked about it from the top down i'm wondering as someone who does this communication work a year on what your assessment of federal provincial and if appropriate even municipal messaging has been what's worked what hasn't and you know how might it improve
1: You know, this is an important conversation because um, we we have a lot more communicating to do (laughs) around the Mm COVID-19 pandemic. And when this is all over, we're going to need a dissection of how communications were handled from the very beginning, right? But at this point, you know, um, thinking about where we've come from, too often, I think we've seen what what I've described as a one-size-fits-all approach to communications, an assumption that everybody who's receiving the message has the same health literacy, speaks the same language comes from a very similar social economic bracket um consumes media the same way and i think if people i hope this resonates with those who are listening you'll start to see like yeah that's actually been what it's typically been a press conference in the middle of the day on you know um on a channel that not not everyone is watching certainly some people are that's why it's there um and a, a lack of really thinking about how people consume information and um you know using um different social media platforms, as we've discussed, is one whole area. But even thinking about the ways that we communicate and like, for example, the constant message of, you know, just stay home, right? Without the kind of... um the, the add-on and, and and consideration for those who uh, think for for those who basically you know staying home for, for some people is a privilege and that lack of understanding of thinking about the fact that some people can't stay home because of their work, because they live in a multi generational home, because they might not even have a home. They might not have a job that supports them to stay home, right? And 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 I appreciate the need for that mainstream message, but we've lacked that message that really resonates with low-income racialized people essential workers, people who experience mental illness, people who use drugs, people you know um, who, who who may not fit that mainstream definition. That's important because the hardest hit communities have been the communities I just listed. The hardest hit communities in COVID have been low-income racialized people. They've been essential workers. They've been people who live in multi-generational homes. Um, and, and, and of course, long-term care as well. And that's kind of a different communications conversation um, too that should be had. But But if you're really trying to reach people um in the hardest hit areas who have been hardest hit you need to meet them where they're at and i and i and and i think whether you know no matter what level of government you're talking about we haven't seen that happen in a way that's transformative um, and and we've paid for it we've we've, a lot of people have probably died because of it unfortunately
0: it's it's stunning to me i i well it, it shouldn't be i've thought about politics for a long time now i've studied it in graduate school, I write about it for public audiences. Still, and yet, I'm still surprised that public health officials, uh, politicians, didn't pick up on this idea sooner. That that a one size fits all message just doesn't work. I mean, I saw one of your TikToks that you sort of said, "Not everyone's watching." Press conferences, right? I mean, of course, yeah. they're not. I mean, for reasons of interest, but also not everybody has access to internet or, or has the time to watch these things. And I wonder what you know what the official approach was meant to be here. That did they just think it was going to sort of filter out into the community? And I wonder what what effect this might have on on vaccine drives. I mean, if we if we yeah. are going to replicate the same problems when we're trying to get folks to go to sites in a safe way. And get vaccinated. I mean, is there a risk that we're just not learning this and and we should have and we're going to replicate the same problem with the vaccine effort, perhaps even again when it comes to the next pandemic?
1: Yeah, you know it, it. It's funny. I I just want to clarify for those listening. I actually got so frustrated that I made a TikTok about how public mes- messaging, public health messaging, should be on TikTok, and I think yeah. that's the one you watched. Yeah, um, and and it's it was meant to be funny, but it was really meant to say like, what are we doing? And yes, this is important because vaccine uptake will will be our biggest communications exercise we have probably had to deal with since the start of the pandemic because it involves people, you know, getting the jab, right? You know, agreeing to put something in their body, which is a totally different ask, um, you know, than staying home or wearing a mask, right? This is really, you're getting a lot more intense. And and, and for some people, this creates fear and anxiety. Um I'm surprised too. And I sometimes, I have colleagues who work very hard in public health units, in government, who, uh, you know, appreciate, you know, I appreciate them. They appreciate me. And I, what I hear is that people are just stretched. People are just working really hard. And if the message doesn't come from the top, to think differently and be transformative, than other other messages come through that take up time. So when we look back at this time, I wonder, David, if we'll reflect on why didn't we use more, you know, expertise from marketing? You know, there's a whole <laughs> Canada has like, some of the best marketers in the world, advertising, um, clinical like psychology, right? Um, behavioral psychology, uh, health, I know a lot of health side communicators who have just recently been taught, uh, to do good work. And, and so, you know, to give credit, David, there has been, you know, some change that's happened through the pandemic. Um, uh, um, there's a group of health science communicators that have come together uh, at a national level to battle misinformation online, and I and I think their work is absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, we have actually seen uh, a change in in the television ads that are, that have been coming out from Health Canada. And I think that that needs to be applauded. Um, but we need more of this, right? And we need more of this than ever. And I think, um, really, when it comes to vaccine rollout and uptake, we're going to need um, to be Really careful about how we communicate. Can I can I tell people about the three C's that I think we need to please think do.
0: about? Yes, please do.
1: All right. So it's one thing to have supply a vaccine. It's another thing to be able to roll it out to a place or deliver it, but it's another another thing to convince someone's heart and mind to, to, to take to take to, to actually take the jab. And so um too often in our discourse, we've been dismissive. So the first thing is we need to be compassionate. We need to be compassionate in our communication. We cannot dismiss people who are fearful or who think there might be conspiracy theories going on or might be anxious. And too often in our discourse we're dismissive. So we need to be compassionate passionate. The second is we need to really be clear. We need to be uh, honest. We need to be, we need to explain the scientific process. What is mRNA? How were they able to produce this vaccine so quickly? And I think that's really key. And the third is we need to be creative. Um, back to some of the things we were talking about before on the, we need to get this information out in a creative way on platforms um, that people really use to meet them where they're at, but even creative about who's delivering the message. So there's, there's a lot of talk about, you know, vaccine hesitancy among racialized people across Canada. And and there's often this, this description of it being due to mistrust of the healthcare system. How can we message it so we convert that 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 from a mistrust conversation to a how can the healthcare system be more trustworthy? For racialized people who've experienced trauma within it to take the vaccine. You see, just flipping that. And that involves the the messaging, how we say it, but also who delivers it. You know, really, um, really supporting faith groups, cultural leaders, you know, BIPOC, um, you know, medical and health leaders across Canada to deliver this messaging. You know, I, I think through the three C's, we can start to navigate this a little bit better.
0: I, I particularly appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, you know, part of that is. Of the challenge is also making sure that there's, I mean, we start now because part of it's going to be time, but also repetition, right? Just sort of having those clear messages repeated over and over and over again. You know, in, in politics, there's this old cliche that I'm going to mangle a little bit, but you know, so you tell them, you tell them what you've told them, you tell them what you've told them again. And by the fourth or fifth time, by the time you're sick of telling them, they're just starting to hear what you're saying. Right. (laughs) Totally. That message needs to be repeated because we're, you know, it's unfamiliar to a lot of people, but also we're just consuming so much stuff at any given
1: moment, right? It's it's absolutely I talk to family and friends all the time and they say there's so many COVID narratives. It's so hard to keep track. And then there's all this misinformation out there too, which we know about. And, 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 and so it's really hard to know what's trusted and how to stay focused. Um, so repetition is really important to, to really inspire an understanding amid, among people, but also for behavioral change. But also the fact that I, I totally appreciate due to international supply chain issues, we don't have you know a lot of vaccine in Canada but this is exactly the time we need to be using this time right now is crucial to start getting that messaging out there to 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 take on vaccine hesitancy and create trustful relationships with people so that we get more covid-19 vaccine uptake i really hope weeks and months down the road we don't look back to this time and say why were we just sitting around not doing anything this is the time that needs to be used
0: yeah, a lot of the heat right now is on is on the supply chain and on whether or not the government failed and which government's a failure is it the federal is it the provincial is it both who do we blame? And uh, I, I understand why that that narrative is is unfolding. I mean, I've I've contributed to it, but I also think we have, in some senses, as you sort of suggest, missed or been slow to adopt the preparatory work of just getting people to. To take vaccines. I mean, even little things like, and I caught myself in the early days thinking about this in, in a way I wouldn't have expected. The, the, pro, the discovery and production of the, of the vaccines and the trials happened so fast that, you know, to most people who sort of expect these things to take a long time, it was like, well, how did that happen so fast? You know, and of course, there is an explanation that the, the, it was fast-tracked, <laughs> that the, the, the same rigor was observed, it was just fast-tracked. Um, but that message was lost, right? I mean, there wasn't a, totally. a, a substantive discussion, a prolonged discussion on why this vaccine happened very quickly, while typically vaccines take a long time. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I was able to figure that out because it's my job. But I think for a lot of folks, just, they didn't have the, the opportunity or the time or even the inclination to do so.
1: Absolutely. You know, explaining the scientific process is is key to this. And the fact that vaccine preparation and discovery and implementation can actually be fast-tracked is a novel concept to people who may not like work in healthcare or science, right? I totally understand that. There's a lot of areas of the world I don't know about unless someone would have explained it to me. So that's an example of not being dismissive of a question like that. And, you know, um, you know you're very compassionate in your writing, David, but too often, in 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 the history of healthcare we have been dismissive about you know healthcare messaging and public health messaging and i think this behooves us to think deeply i mean next week i'll be doing an event in, um in waterloo virtually of course um uh, by um, uh, to support um, vaccine understanding amidst the Black community there, um, and so it's it's it, I I know that the scientific process is one of the questions and topics we'll be discussing because there's a lot of a lot of mistrust of 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 the scientific process around how this vaccine was developed and how it's being rolled out and um and so creating those channels for communication and tailoring that communication is key. The one thing that's bothering me about where we're at is why did is it taking, why does it take local you know, activists and advocates and community health organizations, we're, we're throwing there, you know, there's amazing work being done everywhere, but they're kind of doing it off the side of their desk with very little support or resources. We're not seeing a government driven, um, you know, a, a campaign or, or approach to this. And what it's really falling on the hardest hit communities to come up with creative ways to, to battle vaccine hesitancy in the hardest hit communities. And that's not fair, right? So that's something I've been thinking about also.
0: Especially given that you know, in certain communities, uh, you know, racialized communities, indigenous communities, distrust of the state and its different, uh, you know, the elements of its apparatus makes pretty good sense. So I, mean, I think for a lot of folks, they would might be saying, "Well, why would anyone ever distrust public health, or why would they ever distrust the scientific consensus, or so on and so forth?" And they may not understand how different racialized communities, indigenous communities and so forth view these structures because they have been fundamentally colonial or oppressive in the past.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, we have, you know, going back to the history of the Tuskegee experiments on on black slaves um, to here in Canada, um, you know, previous previous histories of, of nutritional experiments being done on indigenous children to the way in modern day, how sickle cell patients who are typically black are treated in emergency departments to how racialized communities have been treated during the COVID-19 pandemic, Um, you know, here in Ontario, you know, being, um, you know, asked to serve as essential workers, um, for example, but not getting any paid sick leave, um, you know, is an example of like another reason to not trust the government, right? Uh, So yeah, you really have to step into someone's shoes and, and walk a mile to really understand and covid 19 is not an equal opportunity virus it does not affect us all equally we know that Um, and uh you know we may be in the same storm but we certainly are not in the same boat
0: yeah i was thinking about the, the the initial as we are approaching the one year anniversary i was thinking about the sort of initial dialogue and messaging around this we're all in this together and it was plainly untrue from the beginning that we we were all in it together in a sense, but not right. in the same way. And I had early on a, a guest who studies uh, sort of responses to a disaster, uh, Ivan Su, Doctor Ivansu, and then she uh, sort of said, "Well, there's this initial wave of solidarity and trust and hope, and then it subsides pretty quickly." as this becomes a sort of, you know, everyone for themselves dash. And we're seeing that, of course, with the vaccine now. And how do we overcome that? I mean, how do we say, okay, we can't just go around saying we're all in this together and, and it affects us all equal, equally because it's plainly untrue. How do we get across the message of solidarity that also represents reality, that there are these yeah. inequities that get
1: yeah, replicated?
0: Yeah. I mean, part of it's, I guess, just spending money to make sure that people are being paid for for their efforts i suppose
1: yeah well i mean part of part of that you know i'd say the biggest thing to do is to go from rhetoric to just like let's to action, right? We uh, we know the answers that could that could derive equity during the COVID nineteen pandemic, and by and large, um, we have seen a, 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 there has been a failure to act on on what we know will work for those who experience vulnerabilities and are experiencing disparities during this, this pandemic. Um, and I can give you kind of you know. Um, you know, three examples um, that I think, you know, on a timeline a little bit, just that I think are relevant. The first is, you know, when COVID-19 hit, um, a lot of discourse was had around how it was it was hitting racialized communities differently. And we were told here in Ontario, like many places across Canada and and, and North America and Europe too, that no, no, don't worry. It's affecting us all equally. We don't need to collect race-based data. And then the race-based data came out showing that 83% of racialized people, 83% of COVID-19 cases in in Toronto were among racialized people. And that number has not dipped much. Like we're basically seeing around 80% of COVID cases in a city like Toronto happening among racialized people. and so, even just when you're talking about the collection of data, um, that was a that was going from rhetoric to action. Now we do collect that data, and we can act on it uh, with mobile, you know, programs, pop-ups, you know, uh, prioritizing funding to hardest hit neighborhoods, that kind of thing, and really understanding things. Um, the second is how we've kind of um called our essential workers heroes and this like this like rhetoric we need to, like I'd rather we just stop calling them heroes and actually start treating them like heroes and you know I've mentioned paid sick leave as an intervention that really can actually save lives many people are, are surprised to know that you basically if you are an essential worker you know working in a production plant or a factory you can't take a day to be sick you cannot take a day to go get a covid test um You know, and and amidst all this, up until very recently, there was only one employer fined, while there were over like 7,600 essential worker um, uh, 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 COVID-19 infections in Ontario. Some great, you know, journalism that was done through the Toronto Star that showed that. Um, And then the third is, uh, is is really, you know, taking it to action for. People experiencing homelessness another example. This is a population that's 2.4 times more likely to test positive COVID. They're 20 times more likely to be hospitalized because of COVID, 10 times more likely to be in ICU because of COVID, and five times more likely to die because of COVID. And guess what? They've been left out of the first phase of vaccination, and I appreciate that health workers need to be vaccinated. And I appreciate that there's a tragedy in long-term care, and I've been a vocal advocate for that too. But um, but uh, you know, if we really do value the lives of everyone, and we're all in this together, we will prioritize people experiencing homelessness for vaccinations, and we'll do it soon.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, that that makes good sense to me. And I was a little bit surprised that we. We didn't have more of a discussion around that, and we're we're also not really having much of a discussion around it globally either. I mean, it was I'm watching a lot of double standards on vaccine nationalism. A lot of vaccine nationalists who are outraged that the United States isn't shipping doses from Michigan or that Belgium or that the EU isn't um, might in theory deprioritize Canada. <laughs> sort of, while right. while they suggest that Canada uh, prioritized every Canadian before anyone in for instance the global south uh you know i i want to close out though on on a return to this the strategy of getting to people in in the last couple of minutes that we've got so if if the goal of the messaging is to to be you know persistent to be responsive in a timely fashion and to meet people where they're at uh you know is should we be having grand strategies federally, provincially, municipally, or is it just a matter of sort of having resources for people to pick up and adapt themselves to go where they think they need to be? If we were trying to coordinate this or, or to you know, create best practices, what, what's the way forward look like that way? Or do we just end up relying on sort of entrepreneurial advocates like yourself who are good at it and who want, want to take the time and who understand the need?
1: You know, I, I small appreciate... question, the close. Yeah, you know, it's a big <laughs> no picture. Pressure. Question. I I appreciate the question. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's an important question, um, and I'd like—I do appreciate—you know—the kind words describing me and 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 the, and the colleagues that I work with, uh, working across different systems. But when you take a bird's eye view, look at this. Absolutely, we need strategy from all levels of government to 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 move forward and do things better. My question, looking back, is what has been the strategy? Like, what are the moral and ethical values that have driven us? To to get here, and here in Ontario, what what we've seen too often is a instead of you know um, you know thinking about essential workers or, or those who experience marginalization in our communities, there's been an overinvestment in, in corporations, big box stores, you know, for profit long term care, which is a, a different story to get into, but an important one to talk about. The priorities haven't been around equity and human rights and justice. Um, and, and, and where we've gone wrong, in my opinion, when you look back, whenever we've gone wrong, it's because we, we provided a one size fits all approach and we didn't put equity at the core. And I think equity is important all the time. Like I will always say that probably. I've, I've always said that. But during a pandemic, if, if the goal is to save as many lives as possible, considering that pandemics tend to target the poor and marginalized, then equity is 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 arguably even more important of an, of a principle to use as a framework to guide us and where we went wrong from testing to collecting data to you know and we, we seem to maybe be going wrong too around vaccines, particularly with certain subpopulations. Whenever we went wrong, it was because we didn't fall back on equity. We when I when I think back of on uh, when I think when we look in the future and historians look back at this time people will say that if we had just invested in people i mean like in our people people who are working as essential workers you know people who are who are hardest hit by the covid19 pandemic um we, we could have just saved so many more lives and and i think that that's kind of like the way i'm thinking about it i think once you get that strategy happening at multiple levels of government if that is the is the is the Motivation, you can then empower and resource local social entrepreneurs and, and and health organizations and social justice activists and 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 people who have trustful relationships in their communities. But if you don't have that big level framework and it's not synchronized around that moral compass, um, it doesn't it doesn't flow. And that's probably why we've seen what we've seen. Um, yeah. I guess you know for a big, big pie in the sky question, that's that's my best stab.
0: <laughs> it's, it is it is quite a good one, and I appreciate it. And that brings us to time. But I also very much appreciate you coming on to talk about with uh, talk about this with me today, and and for all the work you do. So uh, from so my first thank you goes to you, Dr. Dasani, for your
1: work and for joining me today. Thank you so much, David. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to the listeners at home. Thank you so much for staying home, wearing masks and following public health guidelines. Uh, uh, we appreci- we as health workers on the front lines really appreciate you. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, thank you. My pleasure. And, and as always, uh, my thanks to Mira Ahmad and Aaron, Aaron Reynolds, who make all of this sound, specifically me. So much better and and more coherent than you can possibly imagine. If if only you could see what it sounds like when I'm trying to mutter through month 11 from my bedroom with the closed shutters and a blanket over my head half the time. (laughs) (laughs) You would be amazed. So thanks as always for listening and and of course to Aaron and uh, Tamir for making it possible. And we'll see you again here in a couple of weeks.